This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. In the wake of the G7 summit in Quebec, U.S.-Canada relations have, well, I don't know if they've ever been worse because, I mean, I've been around long enough and studied this long enough to remember the Nixon-Trudeau situation, uh, the Lyndon Johnson, uh, Lester Pearson uh, examples. of It has not always been a love-in. Uh, between these. I mean, even Stephen Harper, Barack Obama, uh, things were pretty testy there for the longest time. But uh, in this particular case, U.S. President Donald Trump and his advisors have thrown insults at our country and at our prime minister, one of them calling uh, Mr. Trudeau a number of different names, including weak and meek, and, uh, and had this claim to make. There's a uh, special place in hell for any foreign leader that engages in bad faith diplomacy with President Donald J. Trump and then tries to stab him in the back on the way out the door. And that's what bad faith Justin Trudeau did with that stunt press conference. That's what weak, dishonest Justin Trudeau did. And that comes right from Air Force One. Yeah, just uh, from the, the Twitter himself. That's Peter Navarro, of course, who was, uh, of course, uh, aping everything that uh, his boss tells him to say on the the Sunday morning shows, uh, and uh, Larry Kudlow doing the same thing uh, yesterday, making some uh, rather insulting comments about the Prime Minister. So what does this do to Canada-U.S. relations, and what are the impact on, well, some pending trade deals that are still being negotiated? Joining us to talk about this is Stephen Sabman, Patterson Chair in International Affairs at the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs at Carleton University. Stephen, thank you so much for the time. Great to have you with us today. My pleasure. Uh, your, your thoughts on, on what happened over the last uh, 48 hours or so? Well, I think the key is that uh, Trump thought that Trudeau was going to do whatever Trump wanted, and so when Trump said no, he got very upset. This is what happens when bullies are disappointed. Uh, and Trump thought he was going to get an easy victory, and he didn't. And so he took out his anger at at Trudeau. He was also, I think, upset that he had to go in the first place. There are reports now that he never really wanted to go, and his his entire body language and his entire attitude while he was there was one of someone who was, you know, a, a kid who didn't want to be there. Uh, and uh, as a result, uh, you know, he was looking for any excuse to lash out, I think. Well, as evidenced by the fact that he was late to get there in the first place. He was over an hour late, wasn't he? Well, he was late by 15 minutes for the second session, uh, for the first session um, on the second day. He also didn't. He also had decided to leave early. So, I mean, he never had any intention of 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 taking these meetings very seriously. There was an attitude here, and I, I guess we can speculate about why he even showed up. Because I, you're right, I saw those stories late last week. Uh, there was some speculation as late as Friday morning that he may not attend. Uh, because of the upcoming summit. Uh, and on the other hand, you had Trump himself saying that he didn't have to prepare for the summit. So there, there were some mixed messages, which is not I guess, unusual for the White House. But he, he he obviously went there with a chip on his shoulder to Quebec. Oh, absolutely. He, he's he been very upset at uh, having to have be treated like equals with all these uh, Europeans and doesn't like the the way the, these meetings are done, where he's one of, of, of seven equals as opposed to one dominant player. Uh, and he doesn't like to be confronted by people who tell him that he's wrong, and he's objectively wrong about all those stances of international trade. So he wasn't, you know, he wasn't expecting to have a good time. It's it's interesting though when you juxtapose that with basically what happens in in the U.S. political arena, uh, where for the most part, I mean, there are some critics, but for the most part, the Congress and the Senate uh, cave into just about everything he says. I mean, you know, I guess one of the subplots of what's gone on with the Trump administration so far are the Paul Ryans and Mitch McConnells and others that just turn a blind eye to all of the, the indiscretions politically and otherwise of Trump. 
Yeah, this is actually one of the first times you're seeing a whole lot of pushback by people. But again, it, it's right now. You know, Ben Sass did his usual thing where he says something, but I don't know if it's actually going to lead to anything. Uh, he's the senator from Nebraska. Um, the Republicans right now they fear Trump more than they uh, fear their elector the, the electorate. Uh, thus far, the, the Republicans uh, in the districts have not run away from Trump too much, or at least the people who continue report being Republicans. And so, they they worry that if they confront Trump too much, then they'll do poorly in the you know in the midterms. Although they're going to do poorly in the midterms anyway. It, well, that's interesting because it, it follows much along the same lines of, of Donald Trump, the businessman, uh, and even the the Apprentice television show, where where everybody feared the guy and they feared what he you know the, his his pronouncements, and that seems to be carrying on, which I guess emboldens him. But it's a different story on the international mar- scene. Yeah, he's uh, his 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 bluster's not playing out too well everywhere else, uh, and I, and one of the things that he, that he, he's overlooked. Is everybody else's domestic politics too? And so what they're going to do is they're going to run away from Trump because politicians are going to outbid each other to be the the one to stand up to, to Trump the most. So if you're if you're in France, if you're in Germany now, if you're in Canada, it's going to be very hard to take stances such as being uh, anti-supply management because you're going to be seen as butting up to Trump, who's going to be wildly unpopular. And it's interesting to see that pushback, though, from uh, people that uh, I guess heretofore had always been of, of the opinion that, look, at the United States matters. I mean, they're the big dog in this thing, and we've got to at least uh, pacify them to any extent. I didn't get that sense from Macron or Merkel or, or certainly from Trudeau over the weekend that they just didn't uh, didn't much care for playing that that secondary role, that subservient role, really. Well, that's the reason why I was so upset is because they pushed back. He wasn't. He was hoping. He he was expecting to get pushed back from Merkel and maybe Macron, but not from Trudeau. Uh, but that's why he didn't want to go in the first place because he knew he was going to walk into a hostile crowd. He'd rather go to Saudi Arabia where everybody fawns all over him and hands him an orb than uh, than doing this kind of thing. The uh, the old adage of a picture meaning th- uh, makes a thousand words. I mean that that classic picture that first appeared in the German media of, of Chancellor Merkel and, uh, and others, including uh, Prime Minister Abe from Japan, arms folded, looking at Trump. Almost uh, it was almost like a, a, a general condemnation uh, to Trump. And the only guy that seemed to be on his side was was uh, Bolton, of course, who was right, on his right side as per usual. But that seemed to set the tone for the whatever length of time he was actually in Quebec. Well, if, if the fun part about that picture is is that each photographer had a different angle on it, so therefore, each each you know there's like four different versions of the picture, with each of their leaders looking good in it. So it's it's one of these things where you can take out of it whatever you want to take out of it. I suppose it's in the eye of the beholder. What what are what are the ramifications of this now, Stephen? I mean, he's gone. He's tweeted. Obviously, his his people like Cudlow and Navarro and others are, are continuing this fight for him. Uh, without a whole lot of support, but I mean, I guess the other thing we have to ask ourselves right now is: look at we're still trying to negotiate a NAFTA deal. There's there's some other concerns that are on the table right now. Uh, is Trump the sort of guy that holds a grudge for stuff like this, or, or does you know, after the tirade does he just forget about it and move on? Well, that's a good question because yes, he's a guy who holds a grudge, but he's also a guy who who uh, doesn't remember what he said five minutes ago. So it's it's a weird contrast, and uh, I. I honestly don't know which which version of Trump or, or his opinions will will play out over over the next uh, few weeks. But I do think that he's going he, that we're not going to see any bounce back from U.S. Canadian relations anytime too soon. But this is not the first time, as I mentioned in my opening comments. This is not the first time the Canada U.S. relationships have have gone sour. 
Sure. Uh, those all precede the time I, I, I lived here in Canada. Uh, but uh, those, di- those circumstances were a little different because uh, that they didn't have at the heart of it the trade relationship between the United States and Canada, yeah. as far as I can tell. And so it's not just a matter of Trump's personality. It's that there's this, the, these issues that are really important, and it's not like uh, they're going to go away uh, anytime too soon. It, we're, even though it feels like Trump has been president forever, uh, we're stuck with him for another, what, two-plus two years or maybe another seven years. Uh, so this is just getting started. Yeah, no, you're right. I think in context, uh, I mean, even the, the, the LBJ uh, Pearson uh, relationship was, was testy and, and obviously Trudeau and Nixon, but I think that was a lot, for a certain extent anyway, based on, on just the personalities. Maybe the only other one that had a very strong policy undercurrent to it was the Cretchen Bush thing, and that was the, uh, you know, we're not going to, so, we're not going into Iran, we're not doing any of this stuff, I mean, a proof is a proof and things of that nature. Uh, which soured relationships for quite a long time and, and might have precipitated uh, the tariffs that George W. Bush tried to impose on, on Canada at, at that time as well. But but this this is different because this is this is obviously Trump being Trump and, and expecting everybody to just fall down and, and obey whatever he wants to do. Yeah, and, it's, and the, the, the bigger problem is, is it's that it's that the U.S. Congress is not stepping up, and so we're gonna, we're seeing... You know, real policy. You know, NAFTA took a long time to craft. It 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 it, uh, it is something that business people have spent now the past you know few decades uh, making basic plans about. And now everything is uncertain, and that that that's the the challenge is that everything is uncertain, uh, and that that's the key the challenge that Trump always thro- uh, uh, creates for everybody else is not knowing what's going to happen next. How do you invest? How do you make decisions? Because you don't know what's going to come down the pike next. Well, how do we handle something like that? I mean, we can think what we want about Trump, uh, about his attitudes, about the way he does business, and, and maybe a lack of knowledge. I mean, there's a long list of things that we should be concerned about here. But I guess the main concern at this stage, Stephen, is, is this is this is our biggest trading partner. This is, as uh, Trudeau's father said, this is the you know it's like sleeping beside an elephant. Uh, we how long can we stand for these guys to be mad at us without some sort of ramification? Oh, the ramifications exist. I mean, we're we're going to be going through now the next several uh, months of uh, economic uncertainty. It's probably to lead to you know both sides losing growth, which means a recession uh, that was largely avoidable, or at least uh, could have is going to be more severe than it would have been otherwise. Uh, the ramifications will be felt for for quite some time, and there's the problem is there's not much we can do about it because. Uh, you know, we're dependent on their economy, they're dependent on our economy, neither side's going to go disappear, or they can't really go anywhere else. All of our supply chains are connected. Uh, the only real hope we have is that somebody in Congress develops some kind of fortitude to uh, figure out, uh, you know, uh, changing the legislation to remove Trump's ability to make trade policy. Which I know has been talked about, but obviously when the Republicans controlling both houses at this stage, the chances of that are pretty unlikely, unless, of course, there's a huge turnover during the midterm elections. Well, I think that's going to be the thing, is that with midterm elections, that will be the point in time where uh, a lot of Republicans are going to uh, face, face the music, and you might actually see them start voting differently, not not you know, after the election, but before before the new crop of people take power. That the lame duck folks may decide to do what is necessary because they'll they'll have a little bit of 
uh, independence now that they're going to be defeated. You, you, I want to get back to the economic issue, and you touched on that just a second ago, and because there's, I think, a double whammy at play here for Canada. Uh, I mean, we can sit here after what happened over the weekend and say, well, we certainly showed him. Our prime minister stood up to your guy. But you're absolutely right. I mean, obviously, there are going to be economic repercussions here immediately because of what's going on with the tariffs. But uh, and and I think there's some legitimacy in what we're saying is that look, this is going to harm the U.S. economy as well. But if that happens, that hurts the U- the Canadian economy even more. So we're we're going to get whacked twice by the same idea here. That's the challenge: is that nobody wins in a trade war besides uh, the nationalists and besides the people with really bad understandings of the economy. Everybody else gets hurt, uh, but doing nothing also is is problematic. So we're kind of stuck. There has been an, an attitude, Stephen, uh, in the first year and a half or so of the Trump administration. The mindset from the Canadian government seemed to be ignore the bluster and the bombast. Let's just put our head down and try to get something done here. Uh, it's this. This is a watermark moment, I guess. That does this change the attitude? Does this change the relationship long term? And and where they need to stand up now? I, and and any acquiescence at this stage is that going to be seen as a weakness? Oh, absolutely. Well, I, th- I think that you're right on there, which is that. They tried the best they could do to to soften the edges of the relationship, uh, and it didn't work. I, I I I we really can't blame the Trudeau government. They they tried everything they could to to try to develop a, a decent relationship with these people, uh, and it didn't work out. And so uh, now we're gonna have to try the other way, which is confrontation, uh, sanctions, tariffs, all this stuff, because. Trump is thoroughly uh, uh, awful. <laughs> Obviously, I think we're, it's pretty evident of what our, our relationship is with the White House and the Trump staff at this stage. But what does this past weekend uh, do to Canada's reputation on the world stage, and particularly, I guess, with, with the other G7 partners? Uh, I, I, I think that everybody sort of just you know shakes their head and goes, oh, we're all in this together. I, I, I don't think it's done any harm to the Canadian rep- reputation. I think everybody sort of understands we're, we're in a difficult spot. It's uh, always interesting when stuff like this happens to see what the next uh, days bring and the next events bring. Obviously, uh, Mr. Trump is preoccupied with Kim Jong-un at this stage, but uh, at some point he's going to get re-engaged in what's going to happen here in North America with NAFTA and other things. And it's going to be interesting to see just how he responds to this. Well, the interesting thing is is that I I think he got his timing wrong in that this, he's gonna, he, he wants to get a big high out of the summer with, with Kim Jong-un, but what's going to happen is this is going to happen today, and then July 1st the sanctions are going to hit, or the tariffs are going to hit, and so that's going to be the news story that's going to matter in July, and so it's going to sort of wipe out the pleasant memories of whatever goes on today in Singapore. There is a, a one rumor and one mindset that I've, I've read in a couple of different publications, Stephen, that indicated that, that the reason that Trump reluctantly ended up appearing at the G7 was he wanted to flex his muscle to, as kind of a show of strength before he went to the Korean summit. Any, any validity to that? I think anybody trying to read too much into Trump's intentions is making a mistake because he's not all that clever uh, about these things. He's not that strategic. I think he, he went because he was supposed to go, and his aides convinced him he was supposed to go because this is what you're supposed to do, and, and he was reluctant to go. I don't think he was trying to go there to, to, to make some sort of point to Kim Jong-un. That's, he's not playing chess. Uh, he's make, doing things one step at a time as impulsively as he can. Point taken. Stephen, thanks as always. Great to get your perspective on this this morning. My pleasure. Take care. Stephen Sadman, uh, Patterson Chair at the International uh, Affairs School of uh, Norman Patterson School at uh, Carleton University. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.
Well, the uh, war of words between uh, Prime Minister Trudeau and President Trump uh, has uh, garnered some support for the uh, Prime Minister in some rather unusual places. Uh, Jason Kenney, of course, uh, leader of the opposition party in, in the province of Alberta, uh, supporting the president uh, or the, the prime minister rather on his stand. Even uh, newly uh, elected Premier Doug Ford here in Ontario, although he's made some uh, rather favorable comments about Trump in the past, says he stands shoulder to shoulder, as he said, with uh, Prime Minister Trudeau in this trade war because Ontario jobs are at stake, uh, and even even some support in a kind of a sideways manner from former Prime Minister Stephen Harper. I don't understand the obsession with, uh, you know, trade relations with Canada. Um, not only is the deficit, trade deficit with Canada small, the United States runs a current account surplus with Canada. Canada is the biggest single purchaser of U.S. goods and services in the world. It just seems to me this is the wrong target. And, and you know, from what I understand of American public opinion, I don't think even Trump supporters think the Canadian trade relationship is a problem. I was uh, the former Prime Minister Stephen Harper speaking on Fox News over the weekend. Not necessarily supportive of Justin Trudeau. I think that would be a little hard for him to do, but obviously suggesting that Trump's uh, attitude towards uh, Canada and the trade deals is wrong-headed and uh, problematic. And quoting the same statistics, of course, that uh, Prime Minister Trudeau and his team have been quoting for the last little while. Other supporters, including uh, Senator John McCain and uh, other Republicans, that are saying the president is wrong-headed in this approach uh, with Canada's number one trading partner. Nonetheless, that's what he's done. And he's obviously not just drawn a line in the sand, uh, he's firing across that line now with some rather pointed comments uh, about the prime minister being weak, meek, and, uh, well, a backstabber, according to one of his staff. So what are the ramifications? I mean, there's still an after deal that's out there someplace. Uh, Trump is now threatening that he may actually impose tariffs on the auto sector, which would be crippling, of course, for the Canadian economy. Is it bluster, or have we started a all-out trade war? Joining us to talk about this is Marvin Ryder, business professor at the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University. Morning, Marvin. How are you doing today? I'm fine, thank you, Bill. This was quite a weekend. <laughs> well, it was not the weekend Justin Trudeau was hoping for. It was our turn to host the G7 Summit in in a lovely little remote part of Quebec with a lovely luxury hotel. It actually seemed to be going quite swimmingly. He had all the right kind of security. Oh, sure, there were some protesters, but nothing like we saw in Toronto a few years ago. Uh, everyone seemed to be warmed up to this. He met with Macron. He met with Angela Merkel. They wanted to talk Turkey. And then we had Mr. Trump. And, and I'm going to say this about Mr. Trump. I think what you watched this weekend was a person whose mind was somewhere else. He's got this big thing tonight in Singapore, a sit-down with Kim Jong-un. Uh, potentially, it could earn him a Nobel Peace Prize if there was some way to, to find peace with North Korea. He had said that all things being equal, given this, that he'd thought about just blowing off the G7, but, well, I can't really do that. It's an important club. So he went there, but his mind seems to have been somewhere else. And therefore, any distraction from his preparation was a wrong distraction. And so as Justin and the other leaders, and by the way, the, this was not Justin Trudeau on his own. All six of the other leaders have had uh, tariffs put on them by Donald Trump, so they all wanted to talk about it, and they all feel that he's wrong-handed about this. I think Trump just felt he was backed into a corner, and when you do that, you attack 
at least vocally, if not with actions. Well, and, and that notwithstanding that, that some people in his administration might have been concerned about this Korean summit, I get that. But, but Marvin, they knew when the G7 was going to be held. I mean, when they set the date for the Korean summit, they knew they were doing this back-to-back. So, I mean, don't blame, you know, the G7 members for this. This was, this was, this was by Trump's administration making this, this conflict. And, and just to add to the point, Trump himself said, oh, I don't need to prepare. I've been preparing all my life. I, 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 so, yeah, oh, boy, this is unusual, getting mixed messages from the Trump oh, White House. Yes, uh, first time ever this has ever happened, mixed messages. Let me just give you a different example of those mixed messages. So Trump arrives on Friday. Friday night, there's actually quite a good discussion one-on-one between Justin and, and Donald, and all of the other people are in the room. And Trump is going on saying, you know, I don't see what's so hard about getting a deal. We can make this happen right now. And they seem to be talking. Uh, Trump, for instance, remember this thing called the Sunset Clause that NAFTA was only supposed to go for five years and then it'd have to be renegotiated. Mm -hmm. He was prepared to waive that. Things seem to be going swimmingly. Everyone sort of toasted things. He left the room and then the tweets began. And the tweets were just 180 degrees away from the climate they'd had in that room. They were all struck by it. In fact, they wondered somehow if maybe they'd got the wrong Twitter feed. Maybe this was some parody Twitter feed. And then, of course, uh, Trump leaves the summit early on Saturday. Sunday, the various newsmakers go to these talk shows in the United States and just rhyme off something that didn't happen on Friday. It leaves everyone dumbfounded. So the prime minister, and I'm going to say this, I know there are people who would probably disagree completely, but I, I think he's doing absolutely the right thing on this. He isn't taking the bait. He's trying to stay above the fray. He's trying to say, look, you can call me whatever you want. You can say whatever you want. Mr. Trump himself has said that leaders of other countries should put their interests first. He's putting the United States' interests first. I I think Justin is doing as good a job as he can with someone so mercurial as Donald Trump. Well, and that's why that support is coming in from, uh, you know, as you might expect, some unexpected sources, people like Stephen Harper, Jason Kenney, even Andrew, Andrew Scheer, the opposition leader, with some guarded uh, support uh, for the prime minister here. But, I mean, uh, you can't argue the fact that he's standing up for Canadians. But I, I guess the thing that, that, that the U.S. administration, that Cudlow and others are saying, started this whole thing with uh, Trudeau's comments, basically it was at a, a press conference, not unlike what Trump held before he got on his plane and took off, where essentially they asked him about Trump's comments, and he said, that's not true. We did not agree that a sunset clause was a good idea. We did not agree that Canada should have a separate deal than Mexico in a trade deal. He said, that's, that's bogus. That's not, so, and he's calling him out on this stuff, and Trump's not used to that. Well, no. Trump, Trump's world is Trump's world, and you know the color of the sun today is whatever Donald Trump says it is. And so when someone fact-checks check, fact him, and says, no, that's, that's not the way it happened. He doesn't care for it very much. But that doesn't mean that the person doing the fact-checking is wrong. Uh, I, again, I think Justin is doing the right thing. He has called, and I would agree with this, this whole issue of, of Canada being some sort of a national security threat to the United States. He's called it insulting. And this is why you've got the conservative leadership backing Justin Trudeau, because it is insulting. We've had a a long 150-year history of peace between our countries. We have the longest undefended border in the world. The trade deficit, whatever it is running, is no different this year than it was last year or the year before, and it's relatively small. If you look at the 10 countries the United States has the biggest trade deficits with, we're not even on the list, or if we make it, we're just in the number 10 spot. If you want to fix your trade problems, I understand, but Canada is not the place to be doing it. 
especially given how integrated our economies are. And I don't know in Donald Trump's world if he simply thinks that, well, we're the easiest pushover in the room because Canada is so nice, we apologize if we do something wrong. You know, maybe he feels he can bully us around. And I, I think Justin is setting exactly the right tone here. We'll listen, we'll talk, we'll negotiate. But we're not going to be bullied, and we're not going to take a second step to anybody. We are just as important as the United States on the world stage, and, and thank you very much. And so, uh, you know, with Trump, you, I think you have to show strength. In fact, showing weakness, kowtowing, is exactly what Donald Trump wants. I think we actually get more respect by not bending to his will. Bill, this is also the same man who said at his very first meeting with Justin Trudeau, this was last February, that he went in and he told Justin, oh, we have this big trade deficit, and we have this and we have that and we have that. And he said, honestly, I don't know what I was saying. I was just making it up. And, and when Justin said I was wrong, of course, I couldn't admit I was wrong, but it turned out he was right. Huh, what do you know about that? Trump makes it up on the fly. This is actually what's worrying about tonight's seminar in, in North Korea or tonight's negotiations in North Korea. I'd rather he not make it up on the fly. I'd rather he not use... Uh, whatever facts come to his mind at that point. But that's the person you're dealing with. We've never seen this before in an American president, and I'll even say this, I hope I never see it again. There's an interesting and I think a very insightful comment by, by Kudlow, who was, of course was one of Trump's minions who was doing the, the, uh, the talk show circuit on the, uh, the U.S. networks yesterday, uh, where he said that uh, he was blaming Trudeau, for, obviously, for, for messing up the, the Korean dialogue and, and the, the, the conference that's going on uh, in the next couple of days. Uh, which which indicated to a lot of people that the reason what they wanted from Trump at this meeting in, in Quebec was to jump to flex his muscle to show hey I'm the tough guy when I talk everybody jumps uh, in other words to look like he was a strong leader in front of Kim Jong Un when they meet a couple of days later and uh, much to his chagrin I suppose not just Trudeau but Macron Merkel and, and a number of others simply backed and said they're not doing this sorry we're not caving into you. Yeah, so this I mean, if it looks like Trump is weak, well, <laughs> you know, if the shoe fits. <laughs> right. So, you know, clearly, again, tonight's meeting in North Korea, there's a lot on the stake here. We, we, the world, would like to see North Korea either cut back on its nuclear program or denuclearize altogether. We'd like Kim Jong-un to take a more reasonable stance on the world stage. And, and so that's a nuanced conversation. The fact that Donald Trump is even getting this conversation, I think, is quite amazing. Um, so he seemed to feel that in the lead-up to this conversation, he had to be seen as the strongest person in the world. You know, we always say the President of the United States is the leader of the free world. So he walked into this summit, albeit late and unprepared, to try to throw some muscle around, and he was expecting the world's leaders to just uh, you know, worship at his feet, and, oh, yes, whatever you say, sir, you're so powerful. And when he didn't get that, he felt undermined. I would argue... <laughs> that his whole expectation was unreasonable. If, if you're looking for validation from others, you're already signaling how weak you are in the world. In other words, I walk into the room, I'm full of confidence. I don't ask you if I'm a good guy. I have to walk in and own it, realizing, as again Justin Trudeau said, he's been insulted by people far more important than Donald Trump in a much worse way than Donald Trump. I, you know, you have to have that self-confidence within it really seems like Donald Trump needs a lot of external validation. And when he didn't get it, he was shocked and appalled and stunned and find out all the other words that you like that go along that way. 
Bill, I, I just returned from a two-week holiday in Portugal exploring that country, and of course I had a chance to talk to many people in, in Europe about Mr. Trump, and they don't despise him, they don't hate him, they just simply ignore him. And this is quite unusual to have a president of the United States who people just say, I can't be bothered, it's its own soap opera, he's like the Kardashians, you know, we're just, we're just turning a blind eye to it, tell me when you elect your next president, maybe I'll pay more attention then. And I think that's one of the problems Donald Trump has with all this bluff and bluster. He, in some ways, makes it so easy to ignore him because you just can't keep up with all the things that he's doing. So here we are trying to negotiate a free trade agreement with him. Uh, we know, for instance, that it's too late now to have the deal ratified by the Congress. We know it's too late because the Mexican elections are going on. But that doesn't mean we give up. We've already done a number of things. Who knows what, what can happen? So you look for your little uh, openings wherever they exist. And if Donald Trump is in the right mood on the right day, who knows what we're going to get. But clearly, I think this last weekend, his mind was elsewhere. He came to a summit ill-prepared with his mind someplace else, and I'm not surprised at the result. But how far is he going to go to wreak vengeance upon uh, Canada? And, and obviously he's got something about Trudeau now. Uh, and, uh, you know, he's, he's already made some threatening comments on Twitter, of yep. course. He doesn't ever do this face-to-face with anybody. <laughs> but he's already tweeted that uh, he may impose uh, sanctions in the auto industry, which obviously is, is bad news if that were to happen. Is, is that more of the Trump bluster, or is this guy really wounded to the point now where he's going to push back? Well, yes, that's a really good question. So let's, let's just go back to the last round. You know, on June 1st, he said, look, we don't have a NAFTA deal, so I'm going to put uh, tariffs on Canadian steel and on Canadian aluminum. Remember who pays those tariffs? It's the consumers of the Canadian steel. It's not the Canadian companies who pay them. It's the people who buy it in the United States. So he's really hurting his own businesses. How did we respond? We said this is inappropriate. So on July 1st, Canada Day, we are matching you dollar for dollar. Every tariff you've put on our products, we're putting similar tariffs on your products. Canada is the biggest consumer of American products. So if you want this, Donald, we'll give it to you. And, and Donald, again, in his little world, believes that America can, can, can win a trade war with whoever, whether it's Canada or anybody else. We shall see. If he chooses to escalate, then we're going to match him dollar for dollar. That's, I think, a very important tone that we have to take with him. We are not sitting back and letting these tariffs or anything else just wash over us and, like good Canadians, just accept it. We're going to push back. You push us, we'll push back. It's the same tone, by the way, that China has taken with him. And it's interesting, Bill, back in March when he imposed sanctions, he said a month from now I'm going to put some more. He's never done that. And, and I think, uh, again, China showed that they weren't going to be bullied. Now, he may change his mind. That's, the man is prone to doing that. But I think we're taking the right step here. Now, you're right. Uh, the auto industry, the, f- the first thing on this would be, h- how do you even figure these tariffs out? Because we have raw material that gets turned into parts, and then the parts get shipped, and they get assembled, and then that gets shipped. This stuff moves back and across the border. And when we make cars three, four, five times in the assembly of a car, I'm sure Ford and Chrysler and GM would say, well, you've got to give us some rules here. Where do the tariffs apply? When do they apply? Uh, so on and so forth. I-, I think he makes this policy without really consulting people. The industry itself doesn't want it. They don't want these things to happen. No one in the United States is upset about Canadian steel or aluminum. In fact, the American aluminum producers say we can't produce aluminum fast enough. Thank God we've got a trustworthy neighbor who can supply us aluminum for our needs. You know, this, this, we don't want these things. So 
I think the devil will be in the details. I'm going to see, you know, frankly this, Bill, if he gets a good summit tonight, if he can make some magic happen with North Korea, all this could be forgotten in a heartbeat. Yeah, and, and what are the chances of that happening? I mean, because if we want, want to talk about the possibility of success in that summit, and we're going to get into that, I guess, later on today when we get some details, but Kim Jong-un is as much of a manipulator as Trump is. <laughs> Yes, it's like watching two puppeteers at work. Well, I, I think to be candid again about Kim Jong-un, uh, his attempts to nuclearize is to really give him a bargaining chip. I don't really think he wants to fire off a bunch of weapons. What he wants is a deal that benefits North Korea and that he'll dangle nuclearization as a way to get a deal. What is that deal? That would mean you know, a releasing assets, sending aid, uh, uh, even just recognition of, of North Korea and its power on the world stage. Now, how much of this Donald Trump is going to give? Keep in mind, again, Donald Trump in many ways, I think, is a, is a presidency in reaction to Obama. And what does Obama have that, that Mr. Trump does not? No, Obama has a peace prize. If he can get some deal with North Korea, hell, I, I suspect Donald Trump would get himself a peace prize. How bad does he want it? All of those things will be going on today in Singapore during this, this uh, summit, and it can go any one of a million directions. There can be gripping and grinning and, and all kinds of agreement, or there could be a, an absolute breakdown, just like we saw at the G7. Uh, he is that mercurial about this, and uh, I've never seen a president that I could could less predict what the next day or even the next hour is going to bring. I, and I understand that that Kim has his own agenda, and, and you're absolutely right. Because of the sanctions, uh, they'd like to see some relief on that because of the impact it's having on their economy. But I, I get the sense that, that his number one objective in here is really just to get a photo op with the President of the United States. And he's been trying to do that to legitimize himself. And, uh, and I mean, he can promise the sun, the moon, and the stars. He's done that before, and his father's done that before, and they've never followed up on it. Yes, well, and, and that's, a, that's a very fair comment. There was a great deal struck by Jimmy Carter under the um, uh, Clinton presidency that actually might have improved the situation in North Korea. But you had a change in Republicans uh, there in the House, remember the Newt Gingrich wave, and then you had the North Korea say, well, if you're doing this, we're doing that, and they went back to where they were. I also wonder, you, you know, Donald Trump, I, I don't know if he's really aware of this, but he's not totally in isolation on the world stage. There are these people called the Chinese, and there are these people called the Russians, who have an equal interest, if not a greater interest, in what's going on in North Korea. How much of this has even been manipulated by them? Uh, uh, Donald Trump, for all of his uh, tough talk, uh, you know, I think he is prone to being manipulated by others. And so I could imagine both Russians and Chinese, who help support North Korea, uh, putting some pressure on Kim, look, do the right thing, go, shake his hand, make him happy. You never know what we're going to get out of all this. You even saw, uh, again, absolutely amazing last Thursday, heading off to the G7 summit, Donald Trump said, why is it the G7? Why is it the G8? Why isn't Russia coming to all of this? And you go, Mr. Trump, a few years ago, Russia invaded the Crimean. We all said on the world stage that was wrong, and it cost them something. It cost them membership. Well, bring them in. Let's talk. Oh, my gosh, Donald. You know, So he, he is a man who, who lives in his own little world and is highly manipulable. Any of that could be going on here. We'll see. Uh, it changes from hour to hour, not just day to day. Marvin, thanks as always for the time today. Hold on for the bumpy ride. You betcha. Marvin Ryder at the DeGroote School of Business. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Doug Ford has to select a cabinet. And, uh, boy, there's more politics in that than there may be in the election itself as to who's going to get what portfolio, who's going to be in, who's going to be out. 
Joining us to talk about this is Alan Carter, who is co-anchor, of course, of Global News at 5.30 and 6 in Queen's Park Bureau Chief. Alan, great to have you back. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, Bill. Thanks for having me on. Uh, this is always interesting and fascinating about the politics within the politics when uh, when these uh, announcements are made. And, and what, what do we know about what Doug Ford is going to do so far? Well, we know that on the 19th he's going to meet with his caucus. He's already... Um He's already named a transition team, and John Baird is going to play a significant role in that. So is Dean French, who is not widely known in the province, but has been a close ally and close confidant of Mr. Ford throughout the campaign. Uh, And so together, the two, along with some other members, are now engaged in what's known as the transition. This is where they're in contact with uh, with the various levers of government and to proceed to actually take over and then we're looking at probably late summer, I would guess, maybe even into September before we really know what the cabinet is going to look like. Generally, leaders don't tell you what the cabinet's going to be like until right before the House sits. And right now the House is scheduled to resume the second week of September. Are there any slam dunks? I don't know if there are. I mean, there are slam dunks as to who will be in on the front bench. Obviously, Christine Elliott will have a significant role. Caroline Mulroney. Ditto. Same goes for some of the stalwarts of the party. He can't ignore guys like Vic Fideli. But in within that is going to be a real story about how he treats the caucus that was, by and large, with the exception of a single member against him mm-hmm. in terms of the leadership. How does he balance those long-serving MPPs who actually have experience at Queen's Park with the newer people that he sort of touted uh, on his way into power, that being both Elliot Mulroney, Peter Bethlehem Falvey, also Rod Phillips, those sorts of people. But and most of those guys, though, and that whole long list that you just mentioned, Alan, are essentially, those are, those are Brown candidates. Those are not Ford candidates. And, and uh, there were some, as you said, some rather unusual remarks from all of them when that whole thing was going on with Patrick Brown. Uh, as to where they stood, and, and none of them were big Ford fans. Uh, that puts him at a bit of a disadvantage, doesn't it? Well, it it certainly makes the balancing act much more difficult for him because, like, keep in mind what you have to balance when you put together a cabinet. You have to balance the aspirations and and you know and expectations of the caucus, those people who believe that they're deserved whatever. Then you have to balance a regional uh, consideration. You got to make sure you got people from the north and people from Ottawa and people from, you know, Windsor and all the rest of that have to be balanced in there as and well. That's, and that's a good point because one of the criticisms of Kathleen Wynne's cabinet uh, in this last term was that it was far too Toronto centric. Well, and that's and that's right. And of course, many of the MPPs for Wynne were from Toronto. Yeah. Mr. Mr. Ford is blessed with having. Uh, you know, members right across the province. Pretty much, you know, he's got he's got urban members, he's got rural ones, he's got northern ones. So he he has an ability to choose from that. But it's going to be an extremely, it's going to be very illuminating as to how he puts together all the disparate elements of his party. You know, I was talking to Deb Hutton, a former uh, advisor to Mike Harrison, mm-hmm. the Eve's the night of the election, and she told a story about how when their first win when Harris first won and they started to see the numbers going over 70 in terms of uh, seats, you know, he, he began almost to despair because, you know, like too many becomes a bit of a problem. Like having too many members, it becomes this problem in itself. 
Yeah, and, and trying to, as you say, reward those that have been loyal, although that's kind of a short list for Doug Ford. I mean, they all jumped on board after uh, he won the leadership, as they were supposed to do. I mean, that's that's what the party line is all about. But he didn't have too many supporters initially. But you got to wonder about about that disparity and, and trying to balance that. I mean, and Harris tried to do that as well with uh, some of the folks that were loyal to him and a couple of, well, Tim Hudak was a newcomer who got, got elected in that time and actually stuck around for the longest time. And you got to wonder if some of those folks are going to feel disappointed because the story I saw today from Queens Park, Alan, is that uh, he's right now musing about a cabinet of only about 12 people. That's significantly less than what Kathleen Wynne had. That will be interesting, too. You know, will he take that conservative sort of, you know, fiscally responsible uh, tack on it and say, well, the bigger the cabinet, the bigger the expense, and I'm going to run a small government, and it's going to start with my cabinet. So it, it'll be, remain to be seen. I mean, that will be difficult. I mean, they, you know, Ontario has a big government because we have a lot of people and a, a huge economy to govern. So, you know, you, you wonder how much trouble will he get in if he puts a bunch of, you know, if he amalgamates a bunch of ministries together and then really lays, you know, that's a heavy workload on just a, a short number of people, a small number of people. And, and with that in mind, you have to ask about responsibilities and where is he going to go. And obviously, with a guy that's got no experience at Queen's Park and only four years in politics, really, as a city councillor, uh, I guess the question a lot of folks are going to be asking here, Alan, is can, will he listen? Uh, you know, when you, you talk about people like John Baird who are supposed to be assisting in this. Uh, does he take advice? Will he listen to this? Will he accept the fact that, look, these guys know a lot more about this than I do? Well, that's, I mean, that's that's very interesting. And I, I think I'll go back to Thursday night and the whole speech snafu. Um, you know, I don't think I want to read a ton into the fact that, you know, they, they messed up with, you know, Kathleen Wynne just starting to her concession speech, and then Mr. Ford began to speak as well. What his campaign team said was, well, it was a bit of a, it was a, bit of a mix-up. It was not an intentional snub. But I think what it tells you is that, no, it's probably not intentional, but it also tells you that not only Mr. Ford, but his team is not beholden to tradition. It's not beholden to custom and I think that's the kind of premiership you're going to see from him where there's, you know, a lot of things that we just sort of come to expect government does, he's not going to do. Is he uh, prone to move in with some of the, let's face it, he's considered to be a bit of a radical, a bit of an outsider. That's how he liked to characterize himself. He's got a few of those in his in his caucus, <laughs> more than a few, uh, the Lisa McLeods and, and Randy Hilliers and folks like that. Uh, does he stay away from them? Does he try to t- counterbalance what he is or does he gravitate toward that? Well, I think with Lisa McLeod, he's got to put her in the front bench. She's a strong member of the team, and I think he would not want a voice like that outside of your circle. That's a, you know, that's a keep your friends close and enemies closer kind of move right there. I think you want her inside the tent. Not that I'm suggesting she's a Ford enemy, but she can be a bit of a loose cannon, and that could be troublesome for that could be troublesome down the road for Mr. Ford. The other one I would watch for is Monty McNaughton. There's a lot of talk about, well, what if they make him Minister of Education? Mr. McNaughton, of course, is dead set against the sexual education curriculum and, and ran against it when he ran for leader. So, and, and even in the, in the campaign, the liberals and both the NDP were suggesting that, oh, if they put McNaughton in as Minister of Education, that would just be horrible. Don't vote for Doug Ford. Well, that didn't work out. So now we'll see how Mr. Ford plays it.
Uh, well, it's going to be fascinating. I mean, we're usually heading into the, the summer solstice where not much has done in politics. Uh, it looks like it's going to be just the opposite with all the stuff that's going to be going on at Queen's Park. That's right. Uh, you know, just uh, when you're at the dock uh, at the cottage, you just can't put your phone down. You just got to stay on Twitter 24-7. <laughs> Alan Carter, of course, from Global News and uh, the Queen's Park Bureau Chief. Uh, thanks, as always, Alan. We'll be watching you guys tonight at 530 and 6. Great. Thanks. Appreciate being on, Bill. Take care. Uh, so how does this work, and, and what are the ramifications? Well, for Hamilton, for instance, uh, because we only have one progressive conservative member. Uh, Richard Brennan's been watching this process for a long time, of course, retired journalist with the Toronto Star who covered Queen's Park and Parliament Hill for many years. He joins us to talk about this. Hey, Richard, how are you today? Hi, Bill. Yourself? Good. This is, as I was just mentioning with Alan, uh, uh, an interesting process to watch how any leader, premier, prime minister, whatever, uh, goes to select the folks in cabinet. Uh, you've, you've watched this happen. Uh, describe to us the mindset that goes on here. Do they try to be representative, or do they try to get people that sing from the same song sheet as, as the premier? Well, they, it, it's a combination of all of the above. Regional representation is huge. So I will, right off the bat, offer that Donna Skelly might have a shot at it, because for cabinet, that is, uh, because of where she is, and she's the only one in the area, and she, you know, re- needs they need a representation from that area. So I, I think that that might work for her. That's just an example. And then, of course, you have you have people that are, you know, your obvious choices uh, because of their background. You know, they've been MPPs or they come from private sector, and you just know that these people will certainly be considered and and most often be chosen. And, and those, as we were talking about, the front bench types, I mean, obviously Christine Elliott, uh, Lisa McLeod, Vic Fideli, probably Rod Phillips, because he's a big finance guy. Uh, Caroline Mulroney is a star candidate. Do you reward a star candidate with the, with basically no political experience and just put put her up on that front bench? Absolutely. Uh, again, you know, the region, the region might uh, certainly play into that, but these are these are big names right off the bat. She's got a, a definite chance. I don't know about the front benches, but certainly as a cabinet uh, as a cabinet post, no question about. It. And you mentioned Rob. I mean, there's another obvious one. Whether he gets finance or, or someone else, but I would suggest he's got a good crack at it because, for example, you you wouldn't uh, use your critics. Not often do a critics role actually morph into a cabinet post. Like Vic Fidelli was their finance critic, but you you don't want to put him in to that position because of things he might have said during when he was a, uh, a critic. Those those kind of things also come into consideration, and and just because you're a farmer, you know you might be a farmer doesn't mean that you're going to get agriculture. It's region really. Like I, I look at a few people here. And I see, well, they, you know, they may be the only person in that region, or they're a strong person from that region, and they were most likely, you know, there's, he's got, I, I don't want to call it an embarrassment of riches, quite frankly, but he's certainly got a strong team to pull from for cabinet. Well, it's the antithesis of what the criticism was about the NDP last week, wasn't it, Richard? Oh, where oh absolutely. They, they'd look and say, well, gee, we kind of like Andrew Horvath, but boy, look at the team. Uh, with with Ford, it seemed to be just the opposite. We're not too sure about this guy, but that's a pretty strong team. And that photo op that we talked about on election night uh, here in Singapore, 
uh, that he assembled, I guess it was about 10 days before the election, with the, the po- a lot of the folks we were talking about, with uh, uh, McLeod, Fidelli, Phillips, uh, Caroline Mulroney, and of course Christine Elliott. But Donna Skelly was at that table, which I thought was interesting. You and know, that I, and that was by invitation. Yeah, I think Donna's got a very good shot at it, uh, given, again, representation. I, I've just got a, a list here, and I'm going to go over really quickly. Sure. And, um, you know, certainly Christine Elliott, she's a veteran, she's a shoe, and she's going to get something. Rod Phillips, I, I, won't, I would take it to the bank. Uh, you know, former CEO of, uh, of uh, well, a couple jobs, actually. He was, uh, he former CEO of Ontario Lottery, and uh, he was on Post Media. And you've got to remember, Rod's been around Queen's Park for a very long time, you know, in, in the background. And he worked for Tory and others. And he knows, he knows how the place works, and, he's, and he brings you know, a lot of uh, to the table. Uh, Vic Fidelli, I, um, you know, again, a regional representation, he's in, in on the fact that he did yeoman duty when in opposition, so he's going to get Carolyn Mulroney, partly because of her name, but also because she's uh, pretty sharp. Uh, Peter, and I'm not sh- sure uh, how to pronounce this, but uh, Beth LaFolvey, uh, Pickering, you know, Woodbridge, you know, former you know, big shot at uh, Manual Life and, uh, and TD Securities. Lisa McLeod, because she was a, a party stalwart and they're, they're you know, uh, attack dog, basically. Rickford, maybe, uh, he, he's, he's from up north, and he's Rainy River. He was a former uh, Stephen Harper cabinet minister. And uh, then, it, you know, it kind of, the, and the next few, I'm just going to write on, uh, Doug Downey, Barry Springwater, Todd Smith, veteran uh, MPP, Bay of Quinty, uh, Prabhmeet uh, Sakara, he's uh, Brampton South, Donna Skelly, we've talked about, Mary Lee Fullerton, you know, uh, Gila Marto, Gila's a, a veteran to MPP. And Effie, and I'm not even, it's a, a, a Trian, Trianthopolis, I guess it is. Uh, Lisa Thompson, she's from uh, Huron Bruce. And there's Raymond Cho and, and Monty McNaughton, possibly Bill Walker. Uh, it'll be a fight between her uh, him and uh, Lisa Thompson for a representation from that end of the province. And and I'm not going to rule out Toby Barrett either from uh, Haldeman Norfolk. Yeah, Toby's been around for a very long time and has, a, you know, no, hardly few, there are not many people that win with the kind of plurality he does. So there you yeah, go. He's got, he's got a lock on that area, doesn't he? Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, gosh, yes. Uh, but there you go. There's a few names, but the top ones I talked about, the top seven, six or seven, um, I would take to the bank. Well, it's uh, it's going to be interesting, uh, and sometimes the story is to who's left out as much as it is as to who actually got picked for this. And uh, I got about thirty seconds left no. here, but as I was just mentioning with Alan, uh, the story we saw on the start today indicated that uh, that Ford may be leaning towards a cabinet of only twelve as opposed to the twenty that were in Kathleen Wins. That means a lot of these folks that we've mentioned here may be on the outside looking in. And I wouldn't suggest it. If he has one that small, I think that's foolish. Because you have a lot of ground to cover, and twelve, you're going to have you're going to have to double up ministries. That's what you're going to have to do, and that's a lot of work. So I, I don't know for you know uh, freshmen, many of them freshmen uh, cabinet ministers. Uh, I, I think that would be a mistake on his part to go to go that low. 
Well, we'll see how it happens in the days and weeks ahead, and obviously we'll be talking a lot more with you guys about this. Richard, thanks as always. Great having you on the program today. Thanks, Bill. Richard Brennan, of course, from the uh, Toronto Star of Queen's Park Days. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.